Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and today marks two years since Canada legalized cannabis. Now, there is obviously much to celebrate in that decision, but there are also challenges ahead that we ought to recognize. First, we need to better oust the black market. Second, we need to improve access for patients. And three, we need to fully right the historical wrongs of cannabis prohibition. On this episode, we're focused on this latter question of righting wrongs, and I'm joined by Anna Maria Ananajor, a criminal and constitutional lawyer, a powerful advocate, and the founder and executive director of Cannabis Amnesty, a not-for-profit advocacy group that has called on the government to delete criminal records related to the simple possession of cannabis. As she said in her parliamentary testimony on Bill C-93 in 2019, we believe that no Canadian should be burdened with a criminal record for minor, nonviolent acts that are no longer a crime. Anne-Maria, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Before we get into the government's efforts on the pardon process and your calls for cannabis amnesty and how those came together and clashed in some ways, why does this conversation matter at the outset? It matters because of issues of fairness and justice. If you care about fairness, if you care about equality, then you should care about cannabis amnesty. We live in a society where we have a substance that um, isn't a substance that causes great harm, and it's been criminalized for decades. And on top of that, we have the fact that it was consumed at equal levels by people across the country, so by all races. And yet, despite that, what we see in cannabis arrests and conviction numbers is that the people who are punished most for dabbling in the substance, for consuming it, for possessing it, for selling it, are people of color. And it's not just a small overrepresentation. We have, you know, almost an exponential overrepresentation of people who are by multiples of people who are black and indigenous in cannabis arrests. We have the numbers to prove this. So from Vice Media, as well as the Toronto Star have for years now been collecting data from various police offices across the country. And what they found is in Winnipeg, for example, you are seven times more likely to be arrested for cannabis possession if you're Indigenous than if you're white. In Vancouver, you're also seven times more likely. In Toronto and in Halifax, you are four times more likely to be arrested for cannabis possession if you are Black than if you are white. And the consequences for that are dire when you think about what an arrest and a conviction means for a person. It means a lifelong consequence of removing a person from their community, a lifelong consequence of depriving them of employment that they seek, housing, travel, volunteer opportunities, and really bringing what they can as a whole human to society. It is very serious consequence and it is disproportionately visited on Black and Indigenous Canadians. And so if we care about fairness and equality and racial equality, then we have to care about this legacy of cannabis prohibition and the way that it was unfairly and disproportionately targeted on Black and Indigenous people. And purposefully so at the outset, at a minimum. I mean, we can maybe say, well, it's or was disproportionately applied in practice in more recent years. But when you look at the evolution of the laws in the first instance, especially in the United States, but including here in Canada, one of the members of the famous five, I mean, they specifically targeted Black people in the course of criminalizing cannabis. And so not only racist in practice in recent years, but racist in its very beginnings. Exactly. And I think who you're referring to is Emily Murphy. And her writings were some of the earliest writings that talked about the harms of cannabis. And one of the harms of cannabis that she saw and that she advocated against was its potential for corruption of the white race by people who are not white in Canada. And our 
history of not just cannabis prohibition, but drug prohibition in general in Canada has deeply racist roots. One of the first acts was the Opium Act, and it was specifically to target the perceived harms that were caused by Chinese immigrants to Canada, and they were perceived to have brought opium that could corrupt white people in Canada. You mentioned Emily Murphy. The quote that always stuck in my head out of the United States was Harry Anslinger, America's first drug star. And he said, reefer makes darkies think they're the same as white men. And you struggle to think that any human being would would think along these lines in any way, as if that's a bad thing, as if they shouldn't feel equal to to white men in the first place. But then to target this drug to then further perpetuate the inequality and injustice as, as between races. It's, uh, it's, it's hard to wrap one's head around sitting here today. When you talk about the disproportionate application of the criminal law, we're not talking about different rates of use. It's not like Black yeah. people or Indigenous people are just yeah. using cannabis more. Their rates of use are the same, but the criminal laws apply disproportionately at the same time. Yeah. And what's even shocking, actually, is that some of the work that's been done by my colleague at the Campaign for Cannabis Amnesty, Dr. Akwasi Usubempa, shows that there is a protective factor. So protective factor meaning less likelihood that a police officer will arrest you. So among white users of cannabis, they already experience a low degree of likelihood of arrest by police. And if they decrease their use, then that that acts as a protective factor. It even more diminishes their likelihood that police will apprehend them. But for Black users of cannabis, decreasing your use of cannabis, decreasing your any kind of dabbling in any kind of criminal activity does not act as a protective factor. The police will still apprehend you. And so it's, it makes it even more insidious because the actual act of participating in a so-called criminal activity or an actual criminal activity, decreasing that your participation in that does not, in fact, decrease the likelihood, if you're a Black person, that the police will apprehend you. It's wild that it's 2020 and we're still having this conversation about correcting this particular injustice. When you were bringing this to Parliament, when Murray Rankin introduced a bill in the last Parliament, I seconded it. I got up in the House and and called attention to the racial injustice and, and said, pardons are not enough. We need to move forward with full expungement, delete these records and fully address this injustice where we can. The government disagreed and the government moved forward with a pardon process. How badly has that pardon process failed? If you look at success just on the basis of numbers, then it's failed astronomically. So we have in Canada somewhere approximately around possibly 150,000 people currently alive with cannabis possession records. Of those, because of the narrow way in which the bill was constructed, so it doesn't apply to every one of those people. It only applies to a certain number of them. So the government has estimated that of those people, there's only 10,000 that would actually qualify for this expedited and free, and again, free meaning that just the application fee is waived because there are actually ancillary expenses which make it inaccessible. But this expedited and free pardon, there are 10,000 people that qualify for that. And then the bill was passed in the summer of 2019. Since then, we have had less than 300 people apply. And of those, not all of them received pardons. So it tells you a couple of things. It's inaccessible. It is still expensive. And of the people who applied and were denied uh, a pardon, they don't understand what the criteria is to qualify for this expedited cannabis pardon. In in any other situation, we had an outcome of 300 out of 10,000. That is an astronomical failure. That is not a success rate by any means. 
assuming that it should even be limited to 10,000 in the first place, which it shouldn't. So it's even it's even an even worse failure. Yeah. And on top of all that, even if the numbers were modestly better in, in any way whatsoever, putting the onus on people who have been unjustly impacted by a record in the first place yeah. to cure the problem when the problem from the outset was in the justice policies of the government. Yeah. Surely the onus should be on the government to solve this problem. And the frustrating element on procedure is when the government says, well, it's just really hard to do with the records that we've got. And then to see other jurisdictions across North America say, well, actually, we can solve this problem. Yeah. And it's not just that. It's not just looking at other jurisdictions. Me as a criminal defense lawyer, I work with people who face charges in front of this court system all the time. It is so easy for the cops to find a a criminal record of an individual when they want to. It's so easy for the system to find a criminal record of an individual when they want to. It's not hard. These things happen all the time. We have a national database called the CPIC that has all of these criminal charges there. I don't understand, and no one has been able to explain to me this, and I suggested it when I was testifying in front of Parliament about this, can't you just control F, like cannabis? Like I, I, Because I swear that's what they do with my clients all the time when it's to the benefit of the state. Control F, delete. Why can't they do that? Um, why does the onus have to be on the individual to find something that the government has in their possession? We have a CPIC database. It's organized there. The government pulls up people's CPICs convictions all the time. And that's where all the criminal records are. So I don't buy that it's hard for them to find. They say, oh, we have to go to, to various courthouses to assure things. No, you don't. All that matters is what's in the CPIC database. Control F, the CPIC database. Remove cannabis simple possession offenses. Why is that so difficult? It does seem like they aimed for the lowest bar possible. I even thought actually low-level trafficking offenses that are nonviolent should have been included, and then that wasn't included. And then I thought yeah. it should have been completely deleted. That that didn't happen. And then even that the low bar that we set, we can't even seem to, to hurdle over it. What's the plan going forward? Seeing the numbers, seeing that the pardons process has been a failure, have you revisited this conversation with public safety? Is cannabis amnesty leaning into this conversation yet again to say, we know this hasn't been good enough now on, on the numbers, now we need to fix it? Yeah, so the conversation that we had with public safety following the passage of Bill C-93, which is this expedited cannabis simple possession records pardons process, the, the conversation that we had with them following C-93 is we got from them that they're not willing to revisit this, when they're not willing to revisit expungements. And so we said, okay, then how do we make you know lemonade out of lemons? So we said, well, we can try because we know that this process is going to be very onerous on people who are trying to get their convictions pardoned. We will set up cannabis clinics to help people guide them through this process. And we were inspired by the expungement clinics that were created in the United States. There's a program called Expungement Week that happens in the United States that's funded by Canopy Growth, a cannabis company. So we entered into conversations with Canopy Growth. We entered into conversations with public safety. For reasons that I won't go into, it kind of sort of fell apart on the part of public safety. And so we've continued that on a strictly private model. So we are looking now to have these pardon clinics set up. We've designed a model. We've designed a pilot program. Um, we have a plan in place. We're just looking for funds. And so we're now just soliciting funds. That was part of one of the things that we talked about in our town hall that we had yesterday on racial justice. We've been in conversation with cannabis companies who want to step up because of COVID and because of instability in the 
cannabis market recently. We haven't been able to get the actual funds to be able to fund this program, but that's where we're looking. We're looking to say, okay, you know what? The government has disappointed us on this. We will continue lobbying for expungements, but in the interim, there are people who are suffering. And in order to help them, we'll take what the government has created, this this imperfect pardon program, and we'll at least try to help them walk them through it. And we will fund the ancillary fees that the government refuses to fund or that the government refuses to waive in order for them to get these pardons. And those ancillary fees are, for example, the research that we conducted uh, led us to understand that in Manitoba, for example, in order to get your, your fingerprints and background check, which is a requirement of it, one of these applications, you have to actually pay about $150. And so that varies ac- across jurisdictions. And we did a survey and it's approximately $250 per person on average to actually get all the documents and stuff that you need to be able to put forth this application. Sure, the government has waived the 600 and change dollar application fee, but there are still these ancillary fees. So we want to raise that sufficient to fund the 10,000 people who qualify. So we're pushing for that. And then we want to hire staff for the, for the pardon clinic. And so we're pushing for that as well. So we've been soliciting, working hard, soliciting the cannabis industry who are, especially since the uh, unrest that happened in the summer, been really tuned into how to leverage their power and their wealth to advocate for for racial justice. And so we've been entering into discussions with them and that's where we see our hope in the future because we really see that the government doesn't have an appetite to engage in this again, which is disappointing, but we've got to push forward for the people that need help. So it might take a private member's bill or a Senate bill to push the government because they're not going to take it up on their own. When it comes to funding to rectify historical racial injustices related to the war on drugs, funding for a pardons clinic would make eminent sense. But I see jurisdictions in the United States go beyond this, and and they're starting to have a conversation about reparations. There are city councils in California, in Massachusetts, and in Illinois, from my reading of things, there may be more. But making sure that there is funding not only to correct a past injustice by way of getting rid of a criminal record, but also making sure that there's funding to support the active participation of previously and negatively affected Black and Indigenous communities because of the war on drugs, that they can now participate in the legal marketplace. Is is that an area where Cannabis Amnesty will direct some of their efforts? Yeah, absolutely. So some of the things that we're advocating for is a kind of divest-invest model. So this was a a concept that was raised by Jabari Paul, who was our keynote speaker. He's the, the head of social justice at Ben and Jerry's in the United States, which is a corporation that has done really, really incredible work in the racial justice space. So what the divest-invest model advocates is that the government divest from the kinds of programming and law enforcement that created racial injustice in the first place and invest in the communities that were the most harmed. One example of, of the way that this can happen is the government can take tax revenue from cannabis sales and invest it into communities um, for the training and licensing and certification of Black-owned and Indigenous-owned businesses in the cannabis space. It can reinvest it in education programmings. It can reinvest it in community support and programmings for young people to make sure that they have the support and the social network and social net to prevent them from falling into crime in the first place. And that can be all done by exploiting tax revenue from cannabis legalization. Which seems necessary based on some of the numbers I saw this week out of 
the Center on Drug Policy Evaluation and U of T, 84% of cannabis executives in Canada out of a survey of 700 of them are white, 86% are male, 1% are black, which certainly doesn't accord with any sense of rectifying past wrongs and encouraging participation of previously negatively affected communities by the war on drugs in the legal marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what those numbers show you is that the way that legalization was brought forward, it didn't have in mind um, as its primary objective to rectify historical wrongs. What it did was create an incredibly onerous and heavily regulated scheme that really required you to have intense amounts of capital and business acumen and previous experience and know-how. And so it attracted executives who came from the mining industry, you know, the alcohol industry, and, and people who had no previous real experience with cannabis and just saw it as another consumable good that could be exploited for the creation of profit, which is, you know, I mean, it's it's business, but it is on the government to have approached it in a different way. The Cannabis Act, when I first read it, read to me like an extremely complex regulatory regime. There is nobody who is from a, a sort of poor or humble background who could have navigated that regime without the assistance of accountants and lawyers and experts. And that is a barrier to entry. And it's a barrier to entry that's now reflected in the numbers of people who are in leadership in the cannabis space. It is people of privilege, people who have lawyers and and accountants and the sheer capital available to make the kind of investment and take the kind of risks that you need to be in compliance with the regime that the government has put into place. There were some people, a significant number of people that were involved in the cannabis space when it was illegal, that are now in the legal marketplace, but they're cops. They were people who were arresting people for cannabis previously, and now they're profiting from it today. So the reality in which we're living is a strange one, where cops can profit from legal cannabis now, but the people who have been deeply impacted by an unjust war on drugs have been left behind. Absolutely. And and that irony is not lost on us. Um, we do a lot of work partnering with a great number of cannabis companies, small, big, from LPs to dispensaries, from Canopy to Bodega. Like We partner with a lot of them for the betterment of this, the social justice in the cannabis space. And we will refuse, absolutely refuse to partner with a company that has been touched at any point by an individual who is, a law, who is in law enforcement and who has not atoned for the great harms that they have done as a result of their prosecution of something that they are now profiting from. I think that's the right approach because, look, there are many police officers who were actively doing their jobs and enforcing the law, but there are many of those police officers who have publicly said they disagree with the war on drugs. There are so very many of them, and anyone involved in the legal cannabis space today should should be taking that public view. When it comes to that racial justice lens on cannabis legalization. I think you're right. It was not brought to bear in a serious way. I'm very happy that we have a, a legalized framework. We no longer have people being arrested for simple possession in the same way that we did before. That is a, a positive, just maybe by accident for racial justice, because it means that the disproportionate arrests that you referenced earlier are no longer happening. But in terms of rectifying those past wrongs, the pardon process did not really seek to do that in a serious way. An expungement process would have recognized that it was wrong to criminalize this activity in the first place and would have recognized that deep injustice. You have called for, I saw a letter from Cannabis Amnesty directed to the ministers to call for a racial 
impact assessment of our cannabis laws on a going forward basis? Yeah, exactly. So we're calling for a racial equity impact assessment. So the Cannabis Act in its provisions requires that the impact of the Cannabis Act on a number of communities be assessed within three years. So that has to happen before October 17th, 2021. As part of that assessment, the minister has to conduct a review of the administration and the operation of the Cannabis Act and look at how it has impacted the health and consumption and the lives of young people as well as Indigenous persons and communities. What the legislation leaves out is that there is no provision requiring it to assess the impact on Black and racialized persons, but the possibility of doing so is not excluded. So what we've asked the government to do is, as part of that three-year review, adopt a racial equity impact assessment, which would look at the way that the Cannabis Act has impacted Black and racialized communities in Canada. And we think that that is absolutely necessary because they continue to be prosecuted under the Cannabis Act. Um, it's it's shocking to many people that the Cannabis Act actually created a number of more criminal offenses than it eliminated. So we still have prosecutions under the Cannabis Act, and we need to know whether they disproportionately impact racialized uh, and Indigenous Canadians as they have in the past. So we, we want the government to adopt that approach. I spoke to John Conroy, who said a little bit was legalized, a little bit more was decriminalized, and then there was a lot more criminal law. And he's yeah, probably it right. Created, it created, I think Bill C-45 created 45 new offenses. And how is it that you come to this conversation and to be such an advocate? I read that you have dabbled in cannabis only twice in the course of your life or something along those lines. I came to this in some respects as a cannabis user to think, how is it that this is illegal and that we are going to throw someone in jail for this? This is less harmful than alcohol. I can do this safely as a responsible adult. 50% of Canadians, when asked, they say that they've used this in their lifetime. It can't be that 50% of Canadians are criminals. So yeah. it's it's an absurdity. It's not only an injustice, it's an absurdity. So I, I came to this early on to say this needs to be fixed. The, our drug laws make no sense. They, they are unjust. How is it you come to this conversation? Well, I come to this as a criminal defense lawyer, as somebody who spends their day fighting a system that criminalizes people for sometimes the most petty and stupid things that deprives them of their liberty as a result of that. And not just their liberty, but the continued impact of a criminal conviction has devastating effects on people and it is it results in intergenerational racial impact. When you think about the effect of incarceration, when you think about the effect on a person's livelihood of not being able to provide for their family, what that, with the trickle-down effect of that, it's devastating. It devastates people, it devastates communities. And especially in the case of cannabis, where it's so patently unfair, you have a non a substance that is not more harmful than alcohol, and you have a substance that is widely consumed by all racial groups. And then to have such a stark disparity between Black and white white and Indigenous arrest rates and conviction rates. Just the perfect storm of that made me so angry. And I, when I get really angry, I have to act. <laughs> so <laughs> I, <laughs> I can't just sit around steaming. Um, so I, I had to do this. It has, it has nothing to do with cannabis. I mean, if the government treated oregano like this, I would be angry, you know? Like, it has nothing to do with the substance. It is about the the reality of unfairness that just overcomes me as something that has to be fixed. 
Well, oregano is delicious, but I, I prefer <laughs> cannabis beverages to, to, to oregano. I, I got to say, I, I really appreciate all of your advocacy. I do think going forward, I've signed up to be one of the co-chairs of our all-party cannabis caucus alongside uh, Scott Reed from the Conservatives and Don Davies from the NDP. And we've discussed three priorities. One is making sure that the legal marketplace better ousts the black market. We've done a poor job of that in many respects. So we, we need to encourage that to happen in a more significant way. Two, we have to take a patient-centered approach and we have to make sure that we aren't making it harder for patients to, to access their medicine. And third, we need to make sure that as we fulfill the promise of legalization, we are fully rectifying past wrongs. And the racial injustice of the application the creation, of course, of the laws, but the application of the laws in recent years and over decades, we have to come to terms with that. And, and, and we haven't. So we have to continue to work towards that end. And I really appreciate all your efforts as a result. Yeah, my pleasure. And I we look forward to working with you. I've had great conversations with Scott Reed. I think he's really committed to the civil liberties aspect of cannabis legalization. And so I think there's a great deal that your group can do, and we're ready to support you. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. I encourage you to check out CannabisAmnesty.ca to support the cause. And do look out for our next episode around this legalization anniversary with longtime cannabis lawyer John Conroy, who I consider one of my legal heroes. Remember to subscribe for future episodes at Uncommons.ca. And please do leave a five-star review if you like what we're doing on your platform of choice. 